is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. As you know, each week I have the opportunity to write a column on a news-based energy theme. I write on a lot of different topics within the energy world. But right now we are on the lead-in time to the UN Conference on Climate Change that will be held in Paris on November 30th to December 11th. And as a result of that, I'm focusing a little bit more on climate change issues than I have throughout the year. Now, I have a lot of different um, inputs into my writing. Different people email me, send me things, point things out to me, post things on my Facebook page. And one of the things that I became aware of this past week was that on October 26, a group of Catholic bishops got together at the Vatican, and they drafted a document uh a proposal uh, that was aimed at encouraging a global treaty to come out of this Paris conference. It goes along with the Pope's emphasis on this. And so that became um, the, the launching place for my column for this week. I also brought some other inputs uh, into the column, but we're going to focus today on America's Voice for Energy, primarily on kind of that Catholic push going into this conference on climate change. So I'm delighted to have with us today my first guest is Dr. Tom Sheehan. And Tom is the executive director of an organization that goes by the name of ITEST, which stands for, represents the Institute for Theological Encounter with Science and technology. Dr. Thomas Sheehan has both a B.S. and Ph.D. degrees in physics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, followed by a 40-year career in energy sciences. So all that is to say that we have a really smart guy with us today. So, Tom, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, thank you, Marita. I'm happy to be here. Tell us first about iTest. What, what do you all do? How did it come about? You're the director? Yes. Um, it was founded some 40 years ago by Father Robert A. Brungs, a Jesuit in uh, St. Louis, and it brought together a group of theologians and scientists who really hadn't spent much time talking to each other in prior decades. And over the years, what we've done is built a collaboration in which we don't try to convince one another of facts, but rather to understand one another, because theologians and scientists really need to talk to each other. And that's the core purpose of iTest. We have people from uh, all walks of life, and we call ourselves interdenominational, interdisciplinary, and international, because some of our members are overseas. Uh, so we've been around for pushing 50 years now, and always the point of our efforts is to understand each other rather than to convince each other. Oh, good. that's a good goal. What type of people are members of this organization? Well, uh, Father Brungs himself was a Jesuit priest, and initially he had an awful lot of friends in the Jesuit priest, too, but he sure. also surrounded himself with university professors, 
uh, scientist. I didn't come along until 1990, actually, to the group because I didn't know about it in the earlier years. But um, we have many engineers, chemists, physicists, teachers, a lot of people who are um, teachers in uh, both public and private schools uh, found that this was a wonderful way to make a connection between their discipline that they were teaching and what they really cared about in the way of religious faith. So this ITES doesn't deal exclusively with climate change? Oh, by no means, no. No. Um, for example, our recent conference that was just completed um, on the 24th of October dealt with economic justice in the 21st century where we were ranging from people who could quote uh, the uh, encyclical by Leo XIII called Rerum Navarro in 1891, all the way up to a gentleman uh, working in the inner city of St. Louis trying to raise the minimum wage for uh, fast food workers. So that's quite a spectrum of... That is definitely quite a spectrum. Yeah. So that's the... Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, we did a thing called... Uh, cyberspace safety for teens, which was mostly about the pornography problem. And another time we did an, a conference on early life issues where uh, things like embryonic stem cell and the research that uh, is associated with that. So our conferences have ranged over much, much wider topics, and climate change is not a, uh, a cornerstone of our activity at all. Well, well, I'm sure there are many people listening today who will be interested in your organization. How can they find out more? Well, we have a website, which is www.itest-faithscience.org. Okay, itest.faithscience.org, you said? Itest-dash, sorry, back again. Uh, thank you. Itest-faithscience.org. Org, org. Okay. Well, thank you. Fascinating. So, but you, let's move then to climate change. You are a Catholic, is that correct? That is true. Okay. So, how do you feel about uh, the the church kind of taking on this issue of climate change? Well, it's very disappointing to me because I have long valued. I mean, looking at history of uh, eight hundred years or so, a very positive connection between the sciences and faith and uh, the work by Jesuit priests, astronomers, and so forth over centuries has been so wonderful that to me it's quite disappointing that in the year 2015 a variety of Vatican functionaries have been swept off their feet by the UN people and uh, inadvertently accepted a line that is just plain scientifically incorrect. And uh, that's very sad in my point of view, and I wish they had come and talked to us at iTest and in the spirit of iTest of trying to understand one another because we would have shown them what the data shows and dissuaded them from believing computer models. What do you think has uh, caused this emphasis coming out of the Vatican? Well, there is a very legitimate purpose, and that has to do with the preference for the poor, the care for one another, and the concern that should be shown by the rich nations for the poor nations. That really is a very valuable, very important point, and it's one that the yeah, and I agree, and I, and I, I think I, I, uh, you know, kind of went that direction in my column. That you know, I believe that the church does genuinely care for the poor. Absolutely. And the trouble is that there's been a confusion, or conflation maybe is the better word, mm -hmm. between 
pollution on the one hand and carbon dioxide on the other. And the scientific facts about carbon dioxide is that it's the gas that gives plants life. And it's something yes. we exhale, plants take it in as food, and then it's part of the life cycle. It is not a pollutant. And, no and you, know, you know that the corn crop and the soybean crop this year is um, kind of a bumper crop. So there's, I'm sure, a better term for it than bumper crop. But uh, while I haven't seen data connecting this, I believe that that is at least in part due to the higher CO2 levels. I can believe that. I know that when CO2 is greater, it causes the stomata, or little openings on leaves, uh, to get a little more open and allows water to come in, and therefore more efficiently you can convert both the water and the CO2 into the proteins that make leaves and, and cause plants to grow. So the idea that that could be helpful uh, and the levels of CO2 increase that we're actually seeing to plant life and to crops and to food is, is a very plausible uh, explanation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a scientist, but I do follow these things. And so when I saw the news story come out about the, the crop, I was like, well, you know, Chances are CO2 had something to do with that. So you're right. When you get to the, the, the conflation, as I think you called it, of calling CO2 or mixing up what is really pollution versus CO2. Exactly. And that's the problem. And that's where I think some of these Vatican functionaries got, got off the rails and, and took a wrong turn. And do you think that's because they are, as as I quoted uh, in my column, that they're, they're pastors, not scientists? Well, that has a lot to do with it. When you are in a position where you're expected to make some public statement and you don't really know the scientific facts, you always open your sentence with the clause, I'm not a scientist, but. Yes. And then at that point, what do you say? Well, way too often you defer to somebody who is eminent and an authority and somebody important like, Ban Ki-moon or Al Gore or, or somebody with a big name and a big title, instead of just looking at the data itself, because it takes attention to look at the data, and it's not a real quick process, but when you're in a hurry to give a quick answer, you sometimes go for the uh, authority route instead of doing the careful work, and that's too bad. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, um, and but you've been to the Vatican. You've tried to get your message uh, as a scientist through to them. Is that correct? That is true, yes. And tell us about that. Well, we went over there in April uh, at the very same time as the conference that uh, was so-called Vatican Climate Summit uh, with Ban Ki-moon and others. And right. we were not welcome inside the inner sanctum of that, but we did um, communicate to the press and the media about what our position was, which was that the um, those UN people were making a mistake, and we did not feel that the advice they were giving the Holy Father was accurate. And we were very much hoping that he would hear the alternate voices which we brought to the table. So and, uh, we go ahead. No, well, we communicated that to the media, but there's no evidence that we actually got through and penetrated through the UN layers that were surrounding this Vatican climate summit that held was held in April. And when you look at the statement that came out in the end of October, 
it looks like such a duplicate of what they issued in the first few days of May, right after the April conference, that uh, it doesn't look like there's been any change. Yeah, and, and that's why I, I included in my column a quote from um, uh, Cardinal Peter Turkson, who advised Pope Francis on the encyclical, that he, he, I found a quote of his, and of course I've got a link to it in my column, where he said, real change comes only from dialogue, but yet they seem so afraid of dialogue. They seem so afraid of letting in any other voice. Uh, we agree with your uh, quote there completely because uh, ITES believes in dialogue more than anything else. And we really wish there had been dialogue. There was a previous conference on the same subject that held, was held in 2007 when, under uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Cardinal Martino was head of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And he made sure that both sides were heard. And that was a very valuable conference, and I wish that these bishops who had assembled the October 26th statement would have gone back and read the record of the 2007 conference, because then they would have seen that scientific opinion really is divided on this, and it's not, uh, no one uh, in the sciences thinks that um, we should be in lockstep, lockstep with the UN agenda. Yeah. We're out of time. I appreciate your insights for, with us today, and hopefully our combined efforts will uh, will make a difference in at least the public thinking on this particular issue, and maybe that will influence things in Paris. We certainly hope so, and our prayers are going that direction, too. Uh, thank you so much. Dr. Thomas Sheehan for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. As you heard in our opening segment, we're talking today about climate change, specifically with an emphasis to uh, the Pope's involvement and the Catholic bishops' involvement in the document that they signed on October 26th. I wrote a column on this subject that you can find, of course, all over the Internet, including Breitbart.com, RedState.com, 
the American Spectator, which is spectator.org, and many, many other uh, websites out there that publish my work. So today I've been so honored to have such a distinguished group of guests who were joining me to discuss this specific topic. And it, for our next two segments, we're going to talk with Hal Duran. And Hal is uh, based in Texas, but he is the chairman of a group called the Right Climate Stuff Research Team. And we're going to hear all about that. And he sent me a letter that he sent to Pope Francis back in June prior to the release of the encyclical. And he says, this letter is respectfully submitted on behalf of an independent, all-volunteer team of more than 20 retired NASA Apollo program veterans who joined together in February 2012 to perform an objective, unfunded, independent study of scientific claims regarding significant global warming caused by human activity known as anthropogenic global warming or AGW. So I'm, I'm just so excited to have Hal with us today uh, to talk about this group, this esteemed group of 20 retired NASA Apollo program veterans, the work they've done, and the conclusions that they've come to. So Hal, thank you for joining me today, or should I refer to you as Dr. Duran? Oh, Hal is fine. I hate to be I hate to be not respectful. That was how you were introduced to me when I was looking for guests for this segment, and uh, you were recommended. They said, "Well, you should contact Hal." So forgive me for the informality there. Well, just about everybody calls me Hal. My my doctorate was earned very long ago in 1970, and most of us have forgotten about it. But um, <laughs> and, I was and what working. Is your background? Well, uh, right out of uh, college with a, a B.S. in physics, I came to work for the Johnson Space Center, which was then called the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, uh, before the, the site was even built here. I came in 1963 and uh, worked as a, a government employee on the Apollo program, the uh, Skylab program, and the shuttle program development. And um, I left NASA in 1979. Um, I did spend a time in the uh, global uh, energy business uh, in the uh, uh, for nine years in the uh, drilling uh, tool business, and then came back to aerospace where I worked uh, for a McDonnell Douglas, Boeing, and another small company before I retired. So I have experience mostly in aerospace, but also I, more than most aerospace engineers, I understand the global uh, fossil fuel business, at least the oil and gas part of it. And I, I don't consider to be corrupted by that. I'm just, I think, better informed about uh, the issues involved in supplying reliable streams of energy to people that need it. Well, interesting. So how did you get involved in uh, the Right Climate Stuff Research Team? What brought you all together? Well, um, I was on the board of directors of a NASA's retiree group, 
and uh, suggested as one of our projects that we host some symposia where we would bring people from either side of this issue to, you know, give us presentations. And our, our NASA Alumni League did that back in September and October of 2011. And that prompted uh, an interest in many of our NASA retirees to look deeper into the issue. And, um, so, so were you were you surprised then at the, the perhaps the response you got from those in attendance uh, that maybe you all discovered that you shared some similar views that you hadn't discussed? Well, I some of us were surprised, but many of us had been looking at this independently, and mm -hmm. um, and we were all. Some of us were really worried. Others were somewhat skeptical. But after that, uh, two programs that we had, uh, and had seen both sides of the story, um, a number of NASA retirees said, hey, we want to dig into this further. We'd like to start a research team. So it was, well, well, hang, you know, hang six, on a second. Hang on a second. So did you say that at your programs at this retirees meeting, you had someone present the so-called skeptical side and someone present the so-called alarmist side? Yes, but we did that in two separate programs. Right, um, okay. Explaining the warmest side to us were uh, three university professors, uh, our state climatologist uh, in Texas, Dr. John Nielsen Gammon, was one of the speakers. Also, um, one of his uh, university colleagues from Texas A&M, uh, Dr. Andrew Dessler, spoke, and also another professor at the University of Houston, Dr. Barry Leffer. And, you know, they gave us, uh, I think, generally the, the scientific background of, of the, the warmest view. And... Um, you know, we we began to see, okay, this is how they're thinking about the problem. And so we formed our own research team to just look deeper into the scientific papers uh, and what and, was and going on. And can you on. tell me who presented the skeptic side, since you told us who presented the warmest side? I think we had four speakers on the skeptic side. One was one of our NASA retirees named Alex Pope, who had been studying um, a lot of data, uh -huh. and uh, another was uh, Apollo 7 astronaut uh, Walter Cunningham, yes. who has been speaking on this subject for several years. Um, another is uh, Leighton Stewart, um, a geologist, uh, and who had written a book on uh, the history of climate that many of us had read. and. The fourth speaker was uh, an ex-NASA uh, meteorologist named Tom Weissmuller, who had spoken to the NASA retiree group on several occasions. And so those four speakers uh, were at our first seminar, and then the university professors were at our second. And I think so you had we a really away. esteemed group. You had an esteemed group in both both sides. You had you had really uh, really great resources. We, yeah, we did. Um, we tried for some other uh, prominent climate scientists, but weren't able to get them. But, you know, have since uh, 
interacted with them. And I should say, too, that after that initial introduction to a wider group, just a number of people that had attended the seminars said, hey, we want to look into this deeper. Can you? And so we organized a research team the following February in 2012. Mm -hmm. And... We were also joined by some uh, people from the Houston community who were not ex-NASA, but they were, you know, prominent research scientists from other industries that had been looking into this issue. And so our team, you know, has a core group of maybe 20 retired NASA scientists, but we also have some very other distinguished scientists um, one from the National Academy of Engineering, um, who participate in our research um, discussions. And we also have people from outside of the Houston area um, who have contacted us over time. We even have a 92-year-old veteran who was at D-Day who's on our research team and has a tremendous perspective. So. Um, we're not all NASA anymore, but that is our core group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we hash out all the latest uh, research papers. And uh, Dr. Nielsen Gammon, our, our state climato- uh, climatologist, continues to interact daily with our group and tends to provide the consensus view from academia about climate change. And we tend to counter with our NASA historical view of how we've handled threats to our astronauts. We, you know, we, I have, and most of us have dealt constantly with safety threats to astronauts in the manned space environment. And we're kind of seasoned with dealing with unknowns and digging into unknowns and understanding the threat and how we should respond to it, especially how do we make decisions to protect human safety and, uh, based on the evidence. And one of the, one of the main things we saw immediately that was wrong with the consensus climate science is that they rely on simulation models far too much. Our NASA policies were if your model isn't validated, that is, if it hasn't been shown to agree with Mother Nature, then you can't use it to make mm-hmm. a safety-critical decision. You have to use empirical data. And this, this is in concert with what the scientific method tells us, that if you have a theory... You can't prove it with an unvalidated model. You have to prove it with physical evidence. Sure, and that that's is science. The, that's the approach our team took, and we found there was plenty available physical evidence to assess the threat. And the way we were taught to assess threats is, is are you deviating from normal, and how big is that deviation? And the answer was our Global temperatures haven't deviated from a normal range, and therefore there isn't a problem for which you can truly determine root cause. 
Yeah, we just got about 30 seconds left in this segment. I'm so glad that I've got you for two segments of our show today. Have you, uh, in your interactions with the gentleman, I forgot his name, I'm sorry, who you said who's a state climatologist, have you been able to change his views at all? Um, I don't know. Uh, John Nielsen <laughs> Gammon, I think, is a very objective and honest scientist. And I see what I think are flaws in his reasoning that puts too much uh, confidence and emphasis on the results of models. But I think he would agree with us that the actual data that we're looking at does not support a high sensitivity of surface warming to CO2 uh, levels in the atmosphere. He gives us all the scientific reasoning that, that people are concerned, but I believe his concern is 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 not getting stronger. It's probably being relieved somewhat. Well, we're going to continue on that uh, thought when we return in just a few minutes. We're talking with Dr. Harold Doran, Ph.D. and the chairman of the Right climate stuff research team. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Fascinating discussion we're having today, and I'm so glad that Dr. Duran is available to be with me for two segments of this show because we haven't even gotten into his letter to the Pope yet. We haven't even gotten to the Catholic part, which has kind of been the theme of my show today. But before the break, how we were talking about the Texas State Climatologist and your interactions with him, and uh, you, you were saying, uh, before I kind of had to cut you off there for our break, that you think that his um, perhaps belief in his views is softening? 
Well, I, you know, John is a well-known national uh, scientist. I'd rather let him speak for himself. Okay. But I do, I do believe that he has benefited from his close interaction with our group. Um, and I, I can't detect a big change in his personal opinions over time, but you know, I think he agrees with our views much of the time, but he still has um, the consensus view that I believe he would identify with. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you before the break, before we, we got into talking about him, you made a comment that I just wanted to clarify because I didn't quite understand it. And I'm not a scientist. I'm a communicator. So you were talking about, and maybe I misunderstood, but you were talking about you looked at the evidence, and I believe you said something like you saw cause for concern. Were you saying that you saw cause for concern because the climate was changing and there was uh, catastrophic concerns there, or, or could you explain that a little more? Do you know what I'm asking about? Yeah, I, I, what I said was um, we didn't see enough evidence to say that we had a critical climate problem caused by CO2 emissions. We see that as a concern, a potential problem. But you we see really what is a potential to, uh, problem? I just want to clarify. What do you see? Yeah, we, we see that as a potential problem. And so the way we were taught, potential problems, you know, you study, you take data on, you make sure you're monitoring the problem, but you don't go try to determine root cause of a potential problem. To, to really determine root cause, you need the problem to have deviated from normal so that you begin to get enough data to be able to figure out what the true root cause of the warming that the planet has experienced since, say, 1850. We don't, I mean, the, the planet has warmed by eight-tenths of a degree since 1850, but it did that kind of variation before 1850 uh, for 10,000 years. And there wasn't an issue with carbon dioxide in those 10,000 years. So there are clearly some natural variations in climate that can uh, and have in the most recent 10,000 years since we warmed out of the last ice age that caused these kind of temperature disturbances. We concluded that there's a probability that CO2 is causing a small amount of the observed warming that we see but we also see there must be some natural effects um, that cause changes in our temperature that climate scientists clearly do not have an understanding of. And it's difficult to say how much of the warming is due to burning fossil fuels, how much is due to natural effects. And you can't pin the cause solely on carbon dioxide. Plus, now let me, jump, let me jump in there because you said we see that there's a possibility that you know humans have some influence that possibly the burning of fossil fuels have some influence and comments like that are where with so many i think and i want you to to uh explain this is where so many people come up with this number where they say all scientists agree that that 
humans are causing climate change. But there's many scientists that I've talked to, such as yourself, who say, well, we think there may be some element there. Can you clarify that concept for us? Well, I, 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 I think most people that are being funded to do climate research, and most of them are funded to understand the human causes of, of uh, climate changes, you know, think it's a very important problem. You know, that's their life's work. I thought my life's work was important, too. But I think um, there is an issue with the alarmism of this subject to keep the research money flowing. And our group was totally objective. We were coming at it from all political points of view and uh, different levels of concern about the problem. But after three and a half years of study, none of us are concerned. We none see this you, as, so, so within your group, there have been some opinions that have been changed as they looked at the data. Yes, I believe that's true. Uh, those of us, well, nobody disagrees with me that we don't, we don't have a serious problem for which we know what our reaction should be. The, the reason we had discipline processes at NASA is until you really understand a problem well enough, you don't want to start taking action that might make it worse. Yeah, certainly you might... can't send a man into space unless you really know all the all the all the things that are that are involved. Yes, yeah, sometimes you have to take action immediate to to get to let you buy some time to understand the problem better, but. The decisions about limiting the use of fossil fuels, that we're way too early to be discussing solutions to a problem we don't completely understand. And that's, that's our background is don't take precipitous action like the UN is trying to do that are going to cause terrible problems for poor people and economic problems in the U.S. and not really affect the problem at all. Even the politicians admit, yeah, we're not going to change uh, what happens with global warming. The other thing yeah, well, that, is we looked, a... Go ahead. We looked, our team looked at, okay, first of all, how, many, how much fossil fuels do we have on the planet that we can burn? And we did a rational analysis of that and said, okay, if we burned all of those fossil fuels, how much more CO2 could we get in the atmosphere? And we didn't come up with an alarming number. We said, you know, it looks like 600 parts per million, which is about 50% more than we have now, uh, is the limit before we're going to run out of fossil fuels and need something to take its place. So we really see that this issue with fossil fuel burning is kind of self-limiting. We're going to yeah, it's run out of fossil. Yeah, going to take care of itself. Yeah, I think the problem will take care of itself. It's certainly not immediate, and we've got time to study it. We look at the uncertainty that is the official position of climate scientists that say, we don't know except from a factor of three uncertainty of how much warming we're going to get by doubling CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's because they're looking at computer model output that's wrong. We look at the data that says, hey, we've 
increase CO2 40% of the atmosphere and we see how much warming we've got and we can project how much warming we're going to get when we finish burning all the fossil fuels on the planet, you know, and we might see uh, another one degree of warming, which we don't see as harmful. It's probably beneficial. And certainly having all of this CO2 in the atmosphere is very helpful for plant life and, and food growth. So why are we trying to limit CO2 in the atmosphere? We don't think there's a, a well-understood reason to do that. Well, that brings us uh, to the, the, the piece that my column this week was really based on, and that is the bishop's uh, document that they produced October 26th at the Vatican that calls for a complete decarbonization of the globe by... 2050 and 35 years, uh, they're calling for for that, and um, they're they're calling for drastic action. That, as you point out in your letter to the Pope, um, and, and, and by the way, is your letter to the Pope on a website? Is that somewhere where our listeners can read this? Uh, yes, it is. Maybe I should have given you that link. Well, um, you can just tell us now what where that would be. Uh, if you don't have it in front of you, I'll continue talking for a moment. Yeah, let me let me send it well, to you in well, an email. Well, you get it. But um, anyway, the the um, in your letter you state that 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 this will really hurt the poor. But but yet, as I said, the Pope and these bishops, this group of bishops from around the globe, have come together to call for this drastic action. Uh, do you want to comment on that? Well, I just think they're very premature. They haven't understood the root cause of the warming we've experienced. I think some of it might be due to burning fossil fuels, but I think just as equal a possibility is that there are some natural climate cycles, long-term, thousand-year-long, that are involved and that don't suggest that all the warming is from burning fossil fuels. Also, they don't talk about how much warming we're going to get. They think it's going to be unlimited. We look at it and say, no, if it's true that fossil fuels are warming the planet, they're not going to do that for another 200 years. You know, we're going to get a little warming, uh, not where it's already hot, but where it's already cold, like at the North Pole, and... We've been that warm before, and, you know, the planet survives. And I think my personal feeling is it's more, far more probable that any warming we get is going to be a net benefit, especially with the known benefits of more CO2 in the atmosphere. So my point to the, to the Pope was, so far, fossil fuels have been an extremely important gift from God to lift this planet out of poverty. And, and I, I highlighted the, that exact line in your letter as I read it. I highlighted fossil fuels have been an extremely important gift from God. There's no doubt about that. And so another question in my letter, do we really understand God's preference regarding CO2 emissions? And I say, we don't do it. We don't understand it. To do that will require a much better understanding of the climate versus food production issues resulting from further scientific research and prayer for wisdom and discernment on this issue. 
These yeah, I can't believe, Hal, we're down to 30 seconds left of our time together. So time has really flown by. You're fascinating to talk to. Does, does the Right Climate Stuff research team have a website? Yes, we do, and it's therightclimatestuff.com. TheRightClimateStuff.com. Fascinating discussion. I'm sorry we can't go on forever, but we've been talking with Dr. Harold Duran, Ph.D., chairman of the Right Climate Stuff Research Team, and uh, having a fascinating discussion today on America's voice for energy. So remember, the our, po- our past shows or podcasts, you can go back and listen to this again and again and again. Hal, thanks so much for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Glad to be with you, Marita. Thank you so much. We'll be right back for our final segment. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to our final segment of America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking specifically about the Catholic Church's emphasis on climate change with the belief that this is something that is a moral issue that's going to help the poor. But as you've heard from my guests, that's really far from the truth. And my final guest today is my friend, Dr. Calvin Beisner, founder and national spokesperson for the Cornwall Alliance. So welcome, Cal. I'm glad to have you with us again. Great. Thanks very much, Marita. Good to be on the program with you, and thanks much for uh, giving the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation a chance to weigh in on this issue. You know, the Catholic yeah. Church is enormous, and uh, its bishops from all the world, all around the world spoke out on this, but frankly, uh, it, it's really sad. I think they've spoken from a state of having not nearly the kind of information like this kind of uh, this kind of, uh, of uh, conclusion. Yeah, so how did you get involved in this particular issue? Well, my involvement really stretches back literally to my toddlerhood as a toddler living in Calcutta, India, where uh, because of my mother's severe illness for about six months, uh, early each morning I would be walked by my nurse uh, several blocks from our home to uh, the home of an Indi- Indian family where I would spend the day. And in those walks, very, very early in the morning, every morning, we would step over the bodies of hundreds of people who had died overnight of starvation wow. and 
disease. Wow. Those just simply imprinted on my mind a picture of the horrors of poverty. Uh, as an adult, when I began to study seriously biblical teaching about our responsibilities for the poor, and then study seriously economics and find out what kind of an economic order actually lifts people out of poverty rather than leaving them in it, uh, and found that that really is an economic order of private property rights, free trade, uh, limited government, rule of law. Uh, and, and then, as I began to find out, too, the absolute indispensability of abundant, affordable, reliable energy, especially in the form of electricity, to lift any society out of poverty and keep it out of poverty, uh, I, I began uh, really over 25 years ago to study these matters in great depth and uh, have spent the last decade of my life basically dedicated to this issue. What is your background before that? I didn't realize you'd been doing this, this type of work for a decade because that's how long I've been doing the work I've been doing is for a decade. Yeah. Well, my, my uh, formal, uh, formal schooling uh, is in interdisciplinary studies in religion and philosophy with double minors in classical languages and classical history for undergraduate, a Master of Arts in Economic Ethics, and then a Ph.D. in history, but I've always uh, done huge amounts of work in theology as well, enough so that eventually I was asked to teach systematic theology, historical theology, and, and social ethics at a seminary, which I did for eight years, after having taught interdisciplinary studies in those fields as well at a Christian college for eight years. So I, I combine theological, philosophical, historical, ethical, political, economic, and in the last decade and so, or so, scientific uh, studies to try to bring a, a really well-rounded approach to these issues. Wow, as long as I've known you, which has been about a decade, I didn't realize the, uh, the depth of your background. Well, it's been very exciting for me because it has allowed me to uh, to bring the background that God has given to me to bear on an issue that really is so very dear to my heart. As I as I mentioned, you know that that memory from India, uh, combined by the way also with a memory also from India, the same period of my life of the beauty of creation. Uh, there is so much beauty, natural beauty, in India uh, that. This gave me an opportunity to combine my concern for the poor with my desire to promote uh, biblical earth stewardship, what, what we at the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation call godly dominion, meaning that we're working to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. Uh, this, this really is just... Uh, it, it's kind of a dream come true for someone who wants to combine broad scholarship with service to the poor and service to God himself as we seek to be good stewards of his creation. So with that background that you have in the theology and the work you've been doing on this, what, what, did, what was your reaction when you first heard that Pope Francis was coming out with his encyclical uh, promoting the UN's view of man-made climate change? 
Well, it was that it it wasn't particularly surprising. Pope Francis, as a priest, was a, a major proponent of what is called liberation theology, which is basically Marxism baptized with some Catholic terminology and fitted to the Latin American context. Pope Francis, of course, growing up in Latin America, had observed the terrible injustices of the economic order that prevailed there for hundreds of years. He thought of that as capitalism, but in reality, it was uh, it was feudalism. It was the kind of economic order that prevailed in Europe in the Middle Ages with lords and serfs, and uh, basically most of the population enslaved. Uh, this is what he observed, and because of his uh, heavily Marxist-oriented education, he came to see that as capitalism, and therefore to to uh, want to to turn against capitalism. Uh, so his, his encyclical, which strongly calls for a redistribution of wealth around the world, for replacing capitalism or the free market with some kind of government-planned uh, economy, that was not terribly surprising. What was a little uh, less uh, expected was the vehemence with which he embraced the notion of dangerous man-made global warming. Uh, and that, I think, is really rooted in a lack of adequate information, which showed itself to me when I read the encyclical. Laudato Si is uh, well over 150 pages long, and throughout it he has lots of references to his various sources, uh, theological sources, historical sources, ethical sources, and so on. But in the four sections of it, four sections that treat the question of climate change, there isn't a single reference to a single source. And that was a telltale sign to me as a scholar that he was now writing or his, his assistants were writing in a field about which they knew next to nothing. And the, uh, the, the reality of that conclusion, I think, is justified by comparing the confidence of his assertion that, uh, that the reality of dangerous man-made global warming is recognized by everyone with the, uh, with the truth that the only, the only real ground for belief in dangerous man-made global warming, which is the computer climate models on which the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the uh, National Academies of Science around the world and the U.S. EPA depend, those models, quite frankly, are not evidence at all. They are not uh, properly what you build scientific predictions upon. They are hypotheses, and they're their predictions have been invalidated. The models themselves have been invalidated because, on average, they predict twice the warming actually observed. Ninety-five uh, percent of them predict more warming than observed. And you know, if their errors were random, you'd expect about the same number to be below as above. But instead, since ninety-five percent are above. Uh, that indicates that the errors are not random but are driven by some kind of bias, whether honest or simply accidental, written right into the models. And then finally, none of the models predicted the complete absence of statistically significant global warming for the 18 years from January of 1997 to uh, September of this year. Uh, so the models, 
simply have been invalidated. Therefore, they provide no evidence, no uh, rational basis for any predictions about future temperatures, and therefore also no rational basis for any policy, whatever. If Pope Francis and his advisors had been aware of this, I am convinced that they could not have written what they did. Well, don't you think they had to have... I mean, I know that people such as yourself and, and our previous guest, uh, Hal uh, Dorian, uh, I know that, that you all have, have reached out to him, and I'm positive that others did as well. Uh, so I think this information has got to have been made available to him, but um, he chose not to uh, give it any credence. Well, I think what you have is a situation where he and his advisors had already taken a firm position uh, based basically on popular media reports of overwhelming scientific consensus, which, by the way, is not a scientific value at all. Consensus is a political value. You know, you want to know who won an election? You count votes. But you want to know how much warming comes from added CO2 in the atmosphere? You don't count votes. You, you get to understand how the climate system works, and then you do careful empirical observation, and you work from the data, and that, that tells you how much warming you get. So it's not, you know, consensus is not a scientific value. But I think the, that the Vatican uh, Pontifical Academy of Social Science, which is where this really came from, not from the physicists and whatnot, um, the, the academy uh, had taken on a position already before it could hear from uh, people on the other side of this. So, like, we didn't even we didn't know that they were couldn't turn back. Right. We didn't know they were taking these positions until they came out with the announcement that they were taking these positions, and by then those positions were set. We've only right. got about a minute and a half left. We've only got about a minute and a half left, Cal, how time flies and you're having fun. And I want to make sure you're able to tell our listeners about your petition. Yeah. Well, uh, we we issued an open letter to Pope Francis back in April, which got which I signed. We, uh, thank you very much. We also <laughs> issued an open letter to the American people and to their elected representatives uh, later in the summer, uh, and you signed that as well. Thank you. And then recently, we issued a new petition called "Forget Climate Change: Energy Empowers the Poor." That is at our website, CornwallAlliance.org. Uh, again, that's CornwallAlliance.org. Go to the home page there, and you'll see a box to uh, sign the petition. Or you can go directly to it at cornwallalliance.org slash energy empowers the poor. That's cornwallalliance.org slash energy empowers the poor. And this petition just basically points out, look, the warming effect of added CO2 turns out to be much less than would be dangerous, but its, its benefit to plant growth and therefore to food for every living thing, animal uh, or man, is tremendous. And so we don't need the kinds of policies that would restrict uh, CO2 emissions. And those policies would harm the poor around the world by depriving them of the abundant, affordable, reliable energy in the form of electricity from fossil fuels that is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping any society out of poverty. Now, while I encourage our listeners to sign that, I will go do the same because I haven't done that yet. But I will sign it as well, and I appreciate your your efforts on this, Cal, and bringing our listeners' uh, awareness to these issues. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy.
Thank you very much, Marita, and God bless. Thank you. Thanks for listening to America's Voice for Energy this week on America's Web Radio. Be sure to tune in next week for our next edition. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.